Imagine you had the power to create the family into which you were born. Imagine that. You had the power to create the family into which you were born. You could choose your mom. You could choose your dad. You could choose your brothers, your sisters, your uncles, your aunts, your grandpas, your grandmothers. What would it look like? What kinds of characteristics would it have? How would its members treat each other? It's an intriguing question, isn't it? If you could choose the family that you're born into, what would it look like? Now, just to clarify, you and I do not have that option. We did not have that option. We had um, no choice in the matter. I suppose if we did, some of us might have chosen a different family or some different family members. Or some of us may have chosen the exact same family. I know my daughters, they told me if they had a choice, they would choose to be born in the exact same family (laughs) after I promised them a trip to Baskin Robbins. We as your pastors, as we talked with you and, and, uh, and walked with you, our friends, our church family, we have this renewed sense that God is doing something special here at Calamesa. We have this picture that keeps emerging, this picture of a family, a metaphor of family. And this, this kind of family is a family where you and I have a lot of say in what this family looks like. You chose to be here. For some reason, maybe for multiple reasons, you've chosen this family out of all the church families you could be a part of. Why? I, I, I know that with this choice, it's, it's us, it's we, it's you and I that determine what this family looks like, how healthy or unhealthy it is, how we treat each other and interact with each other. I'd like to continue this morning our conversation. This is the third part in our series this morning on Family 2.0, this conversation, um, I'm focusing on an aspect that I can get pretty excited about, so you better watch out. I'd like to invite you to turn a Bible with me to the book of Genesis, the first chapter. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the pews there in front of you. And um, the book of Genesis is the very first book, starting with the very first chapter. And let's go with the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting, isn't it? The first picture we get of God is a God at work, a God of action. Notice how it doesn't say, in the beginning, there was God, the great, all-powerful God, the majestic God, the one enthroned in the heavens, the... God above all gods, it doesn't give us characteristics. It simply gives us a snapshot of a God at work, a God who creates. I, I, don't, I say work, but I don't, I don't know if work is the appropriate word to use, the way that you and I think of work. Uh, the... It doesn't seem like God is working as we continue to read through here, as we continue to scan through here. God, we see God speaking. He speaks words, and and stars and planets and moons are flung into space. He says some words, and, and the waters are parted from the land. 
And he speaks, and, and trees erupt from the ground, and blades of grass start to push through the soil. It doesn't seem so much like work, does it? I love the way that C.S. Lewis writes, um, captures this in, in a way that only C.S. Lewis can in, in his book, The Magician's Nephew, first part in the Chronicles of Narnia. He describes this group of travelers that have been transported to this place, this dark place, transported as only C.S. Lewis can transport people, and, and they find themselves in darkness, and all of a sudden they hear this voice, and it's a voice that starts to sing, and the song grows and it expands, and all of a sudden they see light fill the darkness and push out the darkness, and the voice gets louder, and they wonder where it comes from, and, and, and they see a grass start to grow and flowers start to appear in the ground. And the voice gets louder and they see a lion and, and it's the lion singing this song of creation. And as he sings, the earth comes alive. Out of the ground, mounds of earth burst open and animals come forth, created from the earth. It's a beautiful picture of a God who creates, a God at work, and yet it seems almost a little more like play than work, doesn't it? God creating the world. The world is made, and as we read through here, a phrase that keeps coming over and over, after each day of creation, after each section of creation, the phrase that keeps coming out is that the creation is good, and God saw the light, and it was good. And God saw the vegetation, and it was good. And God created man and woman in his image, and it was good. And this idea that the creation is good is loud and clear in this first chapter of Genesis. God creates, and he creates goodness. His creation is good. The world is at peace. There's harmony. The Jewish word for this is shalom. This idea that everything is working together at peace, harmonious. But you'll know that if you turn a few more chapters over to chapter 3, you know what happens to the creation. The chapter, the title of, of the heading of my chapter says the fall, the fall of man. There's a fall of humanity, the fall of creation. When you think of fall, those of you that uh, were children, it's pretty much most of you, I imagine, uh, you probably have dropped things at one time or another in your life, and, and hopefully you haven't uh, dropped anything too valuable or expensive, but if you have, your mother was loving and forgiving. Maybe it was a vase, surely not a vase, but a vase. And you know that when you drop it, it shatters and this idea of fall brings that imagery to mind that when Adam and Eve made the decisions that they made, the fall shattered. And what it broke was relationship. What it broke was relationship with God. What it broke was relationship with ourselves. What it broke was relationship with each other. It broke we see this clearly as we go through chapter 3. I'd like to focus on verse 17 here for a moment. Verse 17 of chapter 3, and the second part of it, begins, Cursed 
is the ground because of you. God is talking, speaking to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground from since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This picture that work has now taken on a new dimension. That the brokenness of the world has resulted in sweat and toil and hardship. And you and I know this all too well. Now, I imagine some of you may survive by physical labor. That may be your occupation. You may be doing construction or some physical hard labor where you actually sweat and you come home sweaty and dirty and physically tired. And you know this text because that's how you eat and that's how you provide food for your family. I imagine a lot of you, though, don't survive that way. I imagine you probably don't perspire much during the day in your office or in front of a class or speaking with people. The sweat that comes may be from the frustration at your computer, banging it on the desk a few times. You, you perhaps don't survive through physical labor, but you sweat, and I imagine you sweat and you toil and you labor in different ways, in internal ways, in emotional ways, in mental ways. And you too know this text is true. That work has changed. It has transformed and we're required to do things differently. Yet, I keep coming back to this realization that God does not abandon us in our brokenness. God does not abandon the world in its brokenness. God continues his work. He continues it not in creation, but in recreation, in redemption, in reconciliation. You'll know this whole story from from beginning to end is a story of a God at work of a God restoring what was broken, of a God bringing the pieces back together, reconnecting people in relationship. The very last book of the Bible, I'll just shoot it up here on the, on the screen for you, Revelation says this, He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I have been making everything new. I have been in the process from the moment of the fall until now. I am making, in the process of making everything new. That's what I'm about. And that's the kind of God that I love. The God who makes things new. Paul captured the same idea in Corinthians also put it up here on the screen for you. This is a text that we all know and love well. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of of reconciliation. 
Basically, what Paul's saying is that the idea that God is about, that God is about one thing in this world and is about bringing things back together, reconciling. And not only is God about that, but he is about us being about that. We have been given, he has committed to us, it says, committed to us this message of reconciliation. If there's one thing that you and I need to share to the world, and we talked about this the idea of walking across the room and, and, and engaging in culture and engaging in people, if there's one message, one thing our story could be or should be, it's that God, the God of the universe, desires a relationship with you and me. He wants to be connected. He wants to be reconciled. We're ambassadors. We're people who speak who act on behalf of God in the world. And this God wants to say through us that he wants to connect with people. And I thought, I wonder, how best will people hear this message? How best will people understand this message of reconciliation? Could it be through our sweat and toil and hard work? and building buildings and implementing structures and formulating ideas and strategizing strategies? And, or could it be simply through engaging and connecting in relationship with them? Now, work is good. Don't get me wrong. Building buildings are important. Programming programs are important. Doing these things, the sweat and the toil, and this is how we survive, and this is, how we, this is how we live on the earth. But I hear God calling us back to the realization that this world isn't about things, and it's not about accomplishments, and it's not about structures. This world is about relationship. And as Pastor Ken said, the first part of the series. When we call people, we're calling people into the family, and the family means connectivity. It means immersing them, baptizing them, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matt Shankle got baptized this morning, and it's this idea when people come into the family of God, they're coming into a dynamic, engaging relationship with the God of the universe and with people. And that's what I love about this church because I see it evident all around it's, it's well known. This, the corporation's business world knows this very well. When you want to increase effectivity in your business or boost morale, what do you do? You, you don't tell your employees, well, you just need to work harder. You just need to sweat a little more. You need to put in more hours. What do you do? You, you take them. You take them whitewater rafting. You take them out to a ropes course. You take them skydiving. Okay, maybe not skydiving. But you take them and you do something fun and, and, and play together. And I wonder, I wonder, for you and I, if God is trying to remind us that just as the world was created, so should we, so should we work to bring the message of reconciliation, not through sweat and toil and hardship, but through play. Because that's where relationship happens. That's where relationship happens. We as individuals, and particularly as a family, I believe, need to learn how to play together in the fullness of the word, 
Because when we play together, in essence, we are stooping down with God. We are picking up the pieces of this broken world, and we're reconnecting them with relationship. We need to redeem and recapture this idea of play. Christians should be the most playful people on the planet, I believe. The most playful. Now, I, I want to clarify a few things. When I say play, because some of us have these negative ideas about play, and we start getting nervous and anxious when I say play, I'm not speaking of escapism. Not saying that you can go home today and tell your spouse, hey, the pastor said I need to spend more time on my PlayStation or my computer. Not speaking of escapism, doing play to, to escape reality. When I say play, I'm not speaking of domination or power or control. These things that bubble up emerge in the midst of all of our games and our play. I had a great experience um, the other day. I, I got to go to a hockey game, the first hockey game in my life very first one, and it was a Stanley Cup final game. My goodness. Those of you that don't follow hockey, probably most of you, the, the Anaheim Ducks are in the Stanley Cup finals, which is the big daddy. I, I got to go to a game through the generosity of a good friend, and, and uh, wow, I'm still trying to reconcile what all that was about. That was an amazing experience. I guess when I say play, I'm not speaking of, of that driving competition, that, that insatiable drive to win at all costs that so often comes up for us when we engage in recreation. Um, this is an interesting quote from Leo. Um, Leo, I, I was corrected on how to say his last name, so if I don't get it right, please excuse me. Derocher? 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 He was the coach of the Dodgers back when some people think that they were a decent baseball team. 1939, the Brooklyn Dodgers. He, um, he made the statement. He said, I never did say that you can't be a nice guy and win. Because I guess he was always saying kinds of things, nice guys finish last, you know. I never did say that, but I did say that if I was playing third base and my mother rounded third with a winning run, I'd trip her up. When I speak of play, I'm not speaking of, of that necessarily. Uh, you and I, I believe fully, are called to join the God, the God of creation as he recreates the world, not by the sweat of our brow, although that's important, but more so by the joy of our play, connecting a relationship. Sometimes, though, it's a difficult thing. I, I know, it's a difficult thing. Because you and I have been raised as good Protestants, good Protestant work ethic, right? If we're not busy, if we're not doing something accomplishment-wise, if we're not, we're not constructing or, or doing something constructive, we've been taught that we're wasting time. I don't know, maybe you've been raised with this phrase, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Yeah? Sound familiar? Idle hands, where does that come from? This idea that people are basically evil and must be scheduled and, and supervised and busy all the time to prevent them from doing evil things? Or could it be that we just have that song? It's a good song, but I think it trips us up sometimes. Work for the night is coming. We don't have time to play. We don't have time to relax. We have to work because the anxiety and the stress of the end of times is here. We've got to work for the night is coming. And we feel guilty when we allow ourselves some time to play. Robert Neal, he has a book in Praise of Play. He says this, It's apparent that leisure is threatening to modern man. 
It provokes boredom in the individual who does not know what to do with himself. It elicits shame in the person who must be important by means of busyness. It gives rise to guilt in anyone who seeks justification by good works. And it provokes anxiety in the many whose free time exposes them to the alienation and the meaninglessness of their lives. So despite the accusation by some critics that we live in a fun society, leisure is often more of a problem than a thing of promise. I propose today that we need to learn how to play. Why? Why play? Why is that important for you and I, especially as a church family? Really quickly, three things. When we play, we affirm the goodness in the world. We affirm the goodness of creation. There is so much pessimism, cynicism, criticism, judgmentalism, antagonism, racism, chauvinism, narcissism, dogmatism, legalism, liberalism, egocentrism, capitalism. Did I just say that out loud? Botulism. You get the idea. There's, there's so much negativity in the world. We're focused on the bad, the, the problems, the thorns, the thistles, the hard ground, the brokenness. We obsess over our faults, our problems, our insecurities, our fears, and we long, we long for an experience that reminds us of the goodness in the world. We re- long for times where we're reminded of goodness. We need people who can pick up a piece and say, look at this, crikey, she's a beauty. We need, we need people. We need each other. We need moments of play. A family that knows how to play together is a very attractive thing as well, isn't it? I don't know the families that you grew up in, but maybe if you didn't grow up in a family that really played very much, you, you knew of families that did, And internally, you saw them and you thought, man, if only my family, if only we could do that, if only my mom would do this, with, if only only we would just do things together. It's attractive. And when we play together as a family, we affirm the goodness in the world. And people are attracted to that. Secondly, we experience growth and healing when we play. When you and I choose to play, we are choosing to grow and to open up for healing. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that the English word most often used for play is recreation or recreation. When we play, we open ourselves up to be healed and to grow. Haven't you noticed in a family that it's much easier to say I'm sorry after you've had a good laugh or some vigorous playtime together? One of the most effective ways to work with children who've experienced emotional trauma or abuse is by something quite simple, play therapy. Allow a child to simply play, and it's amazing what happens as they process and begin to have conversation. When couples in crisis, families in crisis, come and talk, one of the things I'm always curious about And I always ask is, when was the last time you took time to simply play together? When was the last time you played together? And inevitably, it's been too long. We need to play. Thirdly and lastly, we enter into and demonstrate the beauty of God's kingdom when we play. 
You all know the, the passage well in Matthew. Matthew, um, Matthew, what chapter? Chapter 18. Chapter 18, Jesus is, um, talked to the disciples. That time Jesus came to the disciples. Um, they asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The first thing is evident is that Jesus knows that you and I need to change. He knows that the, the patterns that so often absorb our lives are unhealthy. He knows that we need to change. And how? He says, unless you change and become again like little children. He knows the crustiness that develops around us as adults. He knows the cynicism that, that grows inside of us as we experience life. The quickness to judge. And Jesus, I believe, is saying you must understand this and recognize this yourself and realize that I want to bring you back to childlikeness. And if there's anything that children do well, they know how to play. That's what their world is about. I wake up in the morning. My daughter's awake sometimes, and she's holding some cards in front of my face. Daddy, let's play Groovy Eights. If you have girls, you know what I'm talking about. Let's play Sorry together. Let's, let's play. Daddy, can we play? Can we play? That's what life is about. And finally, humility. Jesus says, unless you humble yourself. What humility isn't is thinking less of yourself. Or, or groveling or thinking poorly of yourself. Humility is simply understanding yourself the way that God understands you. It's having a proper view of who you are, your identity. Children know who they are. They're not attached to their work or to, their, to how well they do in school or whatever. They are children. My mom and my dad, that's what it's about. They're children. And I believe God is saying when we understand that when you and I understand that we're children, we are freed up to play. The kingdom of God, this way of life that God intends for us, I believe is most clearly experienced, most profoundly, not in the sweat of our work, as important as that is, but in the freedom of our play. There's a video clip here of a family um, that you know well, and uh, just ask them a couple questions about um, the importance of play for them. Variety. Yeah, that looks real natural. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Wait, was that sarcastic? Are you getting this? One thing we do is we go um, backpacking, so we climb a mountain every year, and um, also mountain biking. We like to mountain bike. 
one thing that makes traveling together um, probably a, a better way of spending our time together rather than doing things at home is that we are taken out of our environment. So, you know, I have all kinds of pressing things that I need to get done at home, but if I'm in Costa Rica or Canada or on top of Mount Whitney, I, I can't weed the garden, for example. And so I, I know how important it is for us to spend time together. Mm -hmm. And so this way I'm, I'm encouraged to really be together. Without the playing aspect in our lives, I think my parents would be more at work and we wouldn't get the opportunity to go outside of our house and have fun together. When I have a family, when I grow up, I want to have, like there's a lot of things that I will pull out of the experience that I've had in our family. And um, I think when when someone grows up, they kind of, they look back in their childhood and see what their parents have done for them. And that kind of um, starts to create what their family is like. But um, basically when I grow up, I want to have a family that has a lot of fun together and does a lot of stuff. And um, I want to be able to teach my kids uh, to be the best people that they possibly can. We don't come by this naturally. It, it takes a lot of real intentional effort to break away from the, the beeper and uh, from the work that we have sitting on our computers and, and just do things. So we have certain commitments that we've made. I mean, for example, you know, very early on in our marriage, I committed to being home for supper as best I could. There are times when I don't make it, but supper time is a very, almost a hallowed family time for us. And we'll laugh together and talk together and sometimes argue together, but it's it's time to gather. And worship time is a is an important time that we just sort of set aside and we do that whether we're busy or not. And on Saturday night that's pretty much a given that we lay all work and everything aside and we just play. And you know, if we're at all together we will we will play. And um, and so it's hard um, to say that this is something that we, we come by naturally. It's very, very intentional. And I have to say I've learned a lot from Kathy. I don't think I would be doing nearly as much without her encouragement. How, how do you play? How do your families play? What would it be like if you went home and uh, just cut loose with your family? Your kids would love it. You might even enjoy it. I know people around you would think, man, they're strange, but that looks fun. There's something about play. To close with a, a, a story, um, my youngest daughter's in T-ball. And uh, she's got a great coach, Coach Tom, Tom Kim, and uh, on the Phillies. We've got a couple of pictures up here. We've got some Calamesa kids on this team, and quite a few of them. Um, great fun every uh, Sunday and Wednesday evenings um, playing t-ball together. And um, uh, it's, it's great because if you've ever been to a t-ball game, um, 
you know these kids aren't out there to hit home runs or to, well, some of them, some of them are, but, but uh, they're just having a great time. Uh, I'd like to relate a story as you show the pictures. Hopefully we've got some pictures. Um, Mike Iaconelli relates in his book, um, A Dangerous Wonder. Last year, my son played t-ball, he writes. Needless to say, I was delighted when Dylan wanted to play. Now, on the other team, there's a girl I'll call Tracy. Tracy came each week. I know since my, t- my son's team always played her team. She was not very good. She had Coke bottle glasses and hearing aids on each ear. She ran in a loping, carefree kind of way, with one leg pulling after the other, one arm windmilling wildly in the air. Everyone in the bleachers cheered for her, regardless of what team their progeny played for. In all the games I saw, she never hit the ball, not even close. It sat there on the tee, waiting to be hit, and it never was. Sometimes after 10 or 11 swings, Tracy hit the tee. Uh, the ball would fall off the tee and sit on the ground about six inches in front of the home plate. Run, run, yelled Tracy's coach, and Tracy would lope off to first, clutching the bat in both arms, smiling. Someone usually woke up and ran her down with a ball before she reached first. Everyone applauded. The last game of the season, Tracy came up, and through some fluke, or simply in a nod toward the law of averages, she creamed the ball, smoked it right up the middle, through the legs of 17 players. Players dodged as it went by and looked absentmindedly as it rolled, unstopped, seemingly gaining in speed, hopping over second base, heading into center field. And once it reached there, there was no one there to stop it. Have I told you that there's no outfielders in T-ball? There are for about three minutes at the beginning of the game. But then they move into the infield where the action is, or at least where their friends are. Tracy hit the ball and stood at home delighted. Run, yelled her coach, run, all the parents, all of us were, were standing and screaming, run, Tracy, run, run. Tracy turned and smiled at us. And then, happy to please, glumped off to first. First base coach waved his arms round and round when Tracy stopped at first. Keep going, Tracy, keep going. Happy to please, she headed to second. By the time she was halfway to second, seven members of the opposition had reached the ball. And they were passing it among themselves. (laughs) Because it's a rule in T-ball, everyone on the defending team has to touch the ball at least once. The ball began to make its long and circuitous route toward home plate, passing from one side of the field to the other. They headed to third. Tracy headed to third. Adults fell out of the bleachers. Go, Tracy, go. Tracy reached third and stopped, but the parents were very close to her now, and she got the message. Her coach stood at home plate, calling her as the ball passed over the first baseman's head and landed in the fielding team's empty dugout. Come on, Tracy. Come on, baby. Get a home run. Tracy started for home, and then it happened. During the pandemonium, no one had noticed the 12-year-old geriatric mutt that had lazily settled itself down in front of the bleachers five feet from the third baseline. As Tracy rounded third, the dog, awakened by the screaming, sat up and wagged its tail. He wagged his tail at Tracy as she headed down the line. The tongue hung out, hung out. The mouth pulled back in an unmistakable canine smile, and Tracy stopped. Right there, halfway home, 
30 feet from a legitimate home run. She looked at the dog. Her coach called, come on, Tracy, come on home. He went to his knees behind the plate, pleading. (laughs) The crowd cheered, go, Tracy, go, go, Tracy, go. She looked at all the adults, at her own parents, shrieking and catching it all on video. She looked at the dog. The dog wagged its tail. She looked at her coach. She looked at home. She looked at the dog. Everything went in slow motion. She went for the dog. It was a moment of complete, stunned silence. And then, perhaps not as loud, but deeper, longer, more heartfelt, we all applauded as Tracy fell to her knees to hug the dog. Two roads diverged on a third base line, and Tracy went for the dog. I wonder, you and I, in the busyness of our lives, in the craziness and the toil and the sweat and the work. I wonder if God is calling us back, the God of creation, calling us back. I gave my son for you. I want you to play and to rejoice in that gift. And now would you hear these words of the benediction? The Lord, your God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. May you go and play in the grace and the peace of this great God.